Hi guys! Hey everybody! Welcome to Desert Sirens! I'm Chelsea. And I'm Janelle. And this week we're going to tell you some stories again. Just yeah. like we do every week. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so here's the story of this week from Janelle. Uh, and I'm just saying that because I don't know if you guys can tell the difference between our voices yet or not. That's hers <laughs> and this is mine. Chelsea. But anyway, so we're jumping back into some ghosts. Ghosts. Yay! This time we're going to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, Santa Fe. Which is the capital of New Mexico, which is kind of funny because Albuquerque's, like, I think Albuquerque has a bigger population, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. We're like Santa Fe's just more fancy. I guess. (laughs) But yeah, so in Santa Fe, there is a hotel called, uh, well, it's called La Posada, the Santa Fe, a tribute portfolio resort and spa. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of words. Yes, that's why most <laughs> articles just call it La Posada Hotel. Yeah, and I said that really white, but that's okay. <laughs> well, you said hotel weird too. I did. <laughs> I'm having issues. It's getting a little late, guys, for words. me. <laughs> yes, but I um, uh, that's a lot of words for a name of a business because don't you have to like register it per word? Right. <laughs> I spent a lot of money. Santa Fe. Yeah, well, I think part of it, as we'll get into later, is that it has gone through so many owners that I think uh, they had to, like, change it up every so often or something. I don't know. Okay, we'll stick with that reason. But, yeah, so it's commonly known as La Posada Hotel, and it is located on East Palace Avenue, and it is close to the Capitol Building, Central Plaza, and other popular sites in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, La Posada, originally the Stab House. I think it's Stab. It's like S-T-A-A-B. Stab. <laughs> I don't think it's that one. <laughs> Why not? That's, that's way better. Especially since one of the um, books that I read mentioned that a lot of people misspell it as S-T-A-U-B. So, so. I guess it would be like Staub. 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 Um... But anyways, so this place was originally built by Abraham Staub for his wife, Julia. Um, Her maiden name was Schuster. Uh, Abraham was born in 1839 in Lugda, Germany, and immigrated to America in 1854 at the age of 15, where he may or may not have worked in Virginia for two years, or he went straight to Santa Fe, like that Information was a little wishy-washy in all the sources that I got. Okay. Um, But anyways, at some point, he worked for his uncle, uh, Solomon Spiegelberg. Uh, He was part owner of Spiegelberg Brothers. Uh, Solomon was among the first immigrants to America in the family. He was a German-Jewish wagon peddler who sold goods to the conquering American troops in the New Mexico Territory. Uh, He was also the first Ashkenazi Jewish settler in Santa Fe. He was among the first. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Abraham, he was five feet, two inches tall. Shorty. Um, According to the Santa Fe archives, he also had a low forehead and a straight nose. (laughs) I'm trying to picture it. Chelsea just had this look of, like, just being gone. Um, (laughs) I was picturing it, But anyway, so Abraham traveled along the Santa Fe Trail to settling Santa Fe in 1858, where he and his brother Zadok built their own large wholesale and trading company, Zadok, Staub, and Brother, 
which made them very wealthy. Mm-hmm. It I'm became it's like just like pharmacy type stuff. Give me two seconds. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it became the largest wholesale distributor in the entire territory. Uh, they sold grain and uniforms to the army and supplies to local residents. Okay. At its height, the brothers earned 600000 a year, which is for- over $14 million today. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so after he had this successful business and was nice and wealthy, he decided to return to Germany in 1865 at the age of 26, where he married Julia Schuster who was 21 at the time, on Christmas Day. Oh. Um, They left a few days after their wedding to return back to Santa Fe. Uh, Why did they decide to come back to America? I think that was Abraham's plan all along. He just wanted to go get his bride and come back. First, okay. Yeah, because Julia actually was from the same town as him. Oh, dang, same yeah. Guy won't even respond to my text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, I remember this one chick back at home. I gotta go get her. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> yeah. But, um, anyways, Julia was a slight woman. She was under five feet tall. She was very delicate with dark brown ringlets of hair atop her head. Like, she would do a style, hairstyle. There's pictures of her online where her hair is just kind of like... It is. It almost looks like just these ringlets kind of piled on her head, but it actually looks nice. Like, describing it sounds kind of weird. Yeah, it does. It doesn't look (laughs) bad, I promise. Okay. (laughs) I believe you. Um, But she also... And this was her great-great-granddaughter who said this, and that her eyes were a little too close together. Oh. attractive. (laughs) Yeah. Again, the pictures I saw, I didn't think she was that bad looking. the way that people are describing these Exactly. <laughs> really weird. Like, almost cartoonish. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the pictures I saw, she looked pretty good to me. Like, but... <laughs> um, but anyways, like I said, she was from Lugde, as just like uh, Abraham, which is in the forested northwest hills of Germany. She also had either 11 or 12 siblings. I wasn't too clear on that, but she had a lot. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, so anyways, they got married and they arrived in Santa Fe in the early, in early 1866, where there were only a few adobe buildings around the plaza. Streets were full of garbage and it was pretty much the crazy old West at the time. Oh, okay. Like she, there was even mention in one of the sources about how like one of the dance halls literally would end in a shootout like every night. That's how it is in Albuquerque. Well, every day. Yeah. (laughs) Not much has changed. (laughs) Uh, but anyway, so Julia did have a very intense journey from Germany to the New Mexico Territory. She went by boat, train, a really crazy wagon road that went through mountains, valleys, desert, all of that. It's gotta be rough. Yeah. <laughs> and finally she got to Santa like, I wonder if wagons had good, um, what's it called? Uh, suspension. Yeah. So, like, if you're riding on all these roads, you're just, like, bouncing around the whole time on some wood. From what I've... What I remember in school and reading and other stuff when I was, like, in history classes in college, yeah, it was not a pleasant <laughs> experience. Great. Great. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so... Let's see. So, yeah. So, they originally moved into a small home on Buro Alley. Buro means, like, a donkey, Mm -hmm. for those who may not know, where she had their first few kids. Uh, 
Let's see. And also, Julia really, not only does she come to somewhere completely different than these forested, hilly areas, and then she comes into desert. Yeah. The Flat Old West. Land, yeah. Um, but on top of that, she only spoke German, and the fact that the Staubs were also Jewish made them stick out pretty good in Catholic New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, true. But they were short enough. <laughs> yes, they were short. They were short. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so in 1882, Abraham built a mansion home for Julia and his growing family. Uh, and he Himself? thus... Well, obviously not. He's oh. rich. He's going to pay for people. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> he, yeah, he had it built and it only took a few months to build. And this was to fulfill his wedding day promise to her. He had promised her... Hey, I know you're used to living a wealthy lifestyle. I have wealth. You're gonna live in a mansion. Mm. Like, yeah, so. don't accept a marriage proposal unless they at least offer you that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, but um, but yeah. So he they, he had it built, and it was built in the fashionable area of Santa Fe at the time, which, like I mentioned before, was East Palace Avenue. It was built as a French Second Empire style brick structure. With three floors, um, a green mansard roof, and a widow's walk that was ridged with elaborate ornamental ironwork. Mm. If I knew anything about architecture, that would be like, Ooh. it's a very, very pretty home. Like, I'll look all this up. Yeah, we'll have to, uh, we'll have pictures probably like on our social media and yeah. stuff. And beautiful, beautiful home. But I have to just picture it in my head, guys. Yeah, <laughs> picturing it. Yeah, it was like those. I'm trying to think if there's a building well known that can match, but like it's. It's like a four, like, on all sides, it, like, slopes up the roof. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm making gestures that nobody else can see, but I'm helping Chelsea. <laughs> For a second, when you were saying it on all four sides just slopes up, I was all, like, a pyramid? He built her a pyramid? But then you said roof. The yeah, middle. the roof. We're okay, talking okay, about the roof. Okay. That's what a man's yes, roof yes, is. Yes. Yeah, so, anyways, it was also known as an emerging territorial style with European influences, so it definitely also stuck out amongst all the adobe buildings because there's yeah. this just brick mansion in the middle of it all. Um, so inside had high ceilings, mahogany woodwork, mm-hmm. ornate brass chandeliers, plaster moldings, gilt floor-length mirrors, furni- and also furniture that was imported from New York and Germany. Oh. Yeah. Um, the family primarily lived on the second floor, and the third floor had a ballroom that became the social entertainment center of Santa Fe. Oh, they just let people in the house like that? Oh, yeah. Well, um, so what happened was Abraham actually became heavily involved in the political climate of Santa Fe. Okay. So he was hanging out with all the higher-ups, so then Julia just kind of had to fall into this um, hostess of high society. Okay. So she, um, so yeah, they hosted a ton of parties and had a bunch of, like, fancy people there. And so Okay, okay. Well, what was on the ground floor? That's a good question. Oh. Nothing I really. I, you know. <laughs> like I mean, now it's. Kitchens and stuff or something? Probably. I would think so. Okay. Like, so it was probably, like, the living spaces. Interesting. I feel like you should have it, like. The ground floor is the ballroom, so that people don't have to go through your whole house. And then, the but then, how are you going to show off all this awesome things you did in your house? Yeah, because then people will steal from you. <laughs> well, nowadays, yes. I don't know, guys. This is the wild west. Who knows, right? 
Yeah, but people gotta show off their wealth, Charles. That's what it was all about back then. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> yeah, now you're like, hi, I, I, I don't have nothing. Um, but anyways, so, so yeah, so like I mentioned, Abraham had become involved in the social political climate. He actually served as the first president of the Santa Fe Chamber of Commerce, and the couple entertained much of Santa Fe High Society, including possibly, possibly. President Rutherford B. Hayes and French Archbishop Jean-Baptiste Lamy, who I also... Why possibly? Because uh, some sources hint that history might have gotten a little confused and it may not have been the Staubs. It may have been Abraham's aunt and uncle that actually did that, that hosted them. Okay, okay. Yeah, because when... um, So Julia's great-great-granddaughter, who I mentioned before, Hannah... I think Nordhaus, I mentioned her later. She uh, ended up researching Julia and her life a whole lot. And mm-hmm. while doing her research, she went to the Santa Fe archives where she found a diary from Abraham's aunt where she was talking about, oh, well, I got to meet Rutherford B. Hayes and I got to do this. And oh, okay. So then she's like, I think history got a bit confused. <laughs> Interesting. Like, no, it was me. No, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so in the home, um, prior to the home, I don't remember. I couldn't figure out, again, conflicting stories, but they had some kids before they moved into the mansion. Yes. By the time they were done having kids, they mm-hmm. had had seven. Oh, wow. Um, Julia had, ha- had birthed an eighth child, but the infant died soon after. Oh, that's really sad. And... Um, and then after that, she, I, from what I could read, it sounds like she tried to continue to have children, mm. but it just didn't go so hot after that. Oh. Like, she kept having really difficult pregnancies, and yeah. they weren't making it. And mm. That's so sad. Yeah, so... I mean, but she already had seven kids. Right. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and due to this, um, of course, in some of the stories, they say, oh, well, she went and I'll get more into this later, but they try to say, oh, well, she, like, went completely insane after losing that eighth child. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, undoubtedly, I'm sure she suffered with some mental illness. I guess a lot of people just debate about how extreme it was yeah. afterwards. Which, I mean, mental illness was, like, a different thing back then than yeah. it is today, too. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, so she did, she did struggle a lot with that. And, um... So, yeah, and like I mentioned, local history says she stayed in her room for two weeks after the eighth baby's death without food or sleep and emerged with her hair turned completely white. From black? Yeah, well, she had dark brown hair, yeah. Oh, interesting. So, again... She was, like, super malnourished and stuff. Possibly. It is possible. Like I said, this was just kind of a local story, so... yeah. Who knows? Yeah, it's like, I don't know. Um... And some versions of the story say that she went insane after losing the infant, and she pretty much stayed in her room, which is now known as Sweet 100, until she died. Mm-hmm. Like, she would rarely come out for anything, is what a lot of the stories say. Really? Even though she, like, she kept trying to have kids after that? Well, I mean, you just need a bedroom to make and have kids, but, I guess. Yeah. And then maybe if she would have gotten pregnant again, then it would have brought her back out yeah and especially and then considering the fact that all the pregnancies after that were she struggled with i wonder if she was on bed rest yeah anyways that's true true. that would be rough yeah 
But in general, Julie was pretty sickly. Like, everyone remembers her being sick a lot. And so... I'm like, for some reason, my, like, true crime mind went to her husband was poisoning her. Well, some people might agree Uh with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, Abraham did what he could to heal her, including sending her on multiple trips to Europe and Germany, Europe and or Germany's uh, most prestigious health resorts. Um, another story in a memoir, a 1949 memoir called At the End of the Santa Fe Trail by Sister Blandina Segale, uh, mentioned that she, she mentioned joining, uh, Sickly Julia to the railroad depot in 1877. I want to read this because apparently it includes a thrilling adventure where they have a narrow escape from Billy the Kid. Well, I was just going to say, so it was like a nun who wrote this book? That book, yes. Oh, I didn't. To be honest, I didn't know nuns wrote books. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was the thing until you just said it. Yeah, I think I think there's quite a few where they did that. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I know. But yeah, so... Um, and then also for her last trip to Germany, five years before her death, she went with two of her daughters, Delia, Delia, Delia mm-hmm. and Bertha. Um, as an interesting side note, uh, Julia's sister, Emily, stayed in Germany, and she was somewhat... And Julie was actually somewhat jealous of that. Oh. Uh, she, uh, Emily lived a long, happy life there, but she did die in the, I'm going to butcher this and I'm sorry, in the Terrasienstadt concentration camp near Prague in 1943 at the age of 81. I was going to say, like, she was jealous of her sister staying behind in Germany, but then they were Jewish. Mm-hmm. So then the whole... Holocaust. Yeah, and all the Jews that had stayed in Lugda, none of them survived World War II. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Besides, I guess, the immigrants that left before it happened. Yeah. Like her. Yeah, and she, and she had passed crazy. away. She actually, we'll find out later, she passed away before World I War II ever happened. happened. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, um, but anyways, and so this idea comes from Bertha's diary because that gave the impression that Julia felt quote yanked out of Europe and taken to this very rustic rude place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but Julia did pass away in 1896 at the age of 52 and Abraham died in 1913, a year after New Mexico became a state. Oh, uh, so as you were kind of talking about earlier, uh, some stories about Abraham paint him in a negative light, uh, but as Hannah's research shows, he was, he had his issues. He definitely had his issues, <laughs> but he was just a very, it's a very complex situation. But for, she says from what her actual research, a lot of this might not be as extreme as people say it was. No, okay. <laughs> but there are, but people are very suspicious of Abraham. <laughs> I was too. <laughs> <laughs> um... Because some local stories say that he chained Julia to a radiator when she went crazy after that infant's death. And he may have led to her suicide or murdered her. But as I said, there's no real... See, and I was going to say, too, because if he was such a, so high up in society and then, like, after this happened, his wife went crazy, then that's another reason why I would see, like, him doing something to her. Yeah. Because then people, like, rarely saw her after that. Suspicious. True. Um, and I know also, like, I remember hearing from some people that, like, 
in older times when people had mental illness or anything like that, a lot of times you were kind of locked away because, like, nobody yeah. wanted to deal with you kind of thing. Yeah. Or, or almost like they were embarrassed, too. Like, they didn't want people to know. Yeah. Sad. Yeah, definitely. But, um, yeah. And what Hannah... Nordhaus says is, uh, Abraham was likely strict and authoritarian, but there was no evidence of abuse when it came to Julia. Again, hard at that time to know, yeah, but she sense. tried to look and yeah. that was her conclusion. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> he was caught in several lawsuits and many shady, uh, real estate deals. It's so a very he, rich guy of him. Yeah. He did some <laughs> sketchy things. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, so after the Staubs passed away, the house was sold because none of the heirs wanted to live there. <laughs> what? Yeah, which blows my mind. I'm like, it's a freaking mansion. Yeah. What's what you want? I'd be like, sure, Dad, whatever, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so the home was sold to Lawrence E. and Edna Rich Elliott, who lived there while running a different hotel. Um, during the time they were there, a fire destroyed the third floor in the 1920s. Oh. And I, from what I understand, it was never restored. Like, the third floor just is gone. Like, completely or just, like, in shambles or whatever? Um, I would assume it's completely gone and because um, now that it's, like, a resort, I'm sure they wouldn't have. <laughs> like, that's just the roof. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um... The Elliots did lose all their wealth in the Great Depression, and they had to sell the home in the 1930s. Okay. Uh, let's see. And then... Okay, so then R.H., also known as Harold, and Eulalia Nason purchased the home in 1936. Uh, for a while in the 30s and 40s, it also served as a summer art school that drew leaders of the Santa Fe arts movement. Random. Yeah. Um, but during their time that they owned it, they did turn the property into La Posada Hotel. Okay. And they, The art people? Yes, the art people. Okay. So they um, expanded the property, buying the neighboring six acres from the Baca family. Not my family. <laughs> For those who don't know, my maiden name is Baca. And there are so many Bacas in New Mexico yeah. that are actually not related. It's hilarious. I assume your great-great-grandfather was a cow farmer i don't know <laughs> or sold cow well my grandfather was a cowboy so cowboys. <laughs> um but anyway so they bought the neighboring six acres from the baca family and the historic 17th century pueblo structures that were on that land how many structures did it say it did not tell oh, me okay um and now i wouldn't like if you go and count now it would be different because yeah. they built more later on okay uh, but they developed and combined all of the buildings to make a resort complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, like I said, they also constructed a series of Spanish colonial revival style lodgings around the mansion out of adobe. Mm -hmm. The property became a luxurious resort when later owners that purchased it in 1974 expanded the site in the 1990s. They also added additional facilities in the 1980s. And... A Dallas-based real estate firm called Olympus Corp bought the property in 1997 and invested $15 million for renovations, which included adding a 5,000-square-foot spa and a 4,500-square-foot conference space. Mm, let's go. 
right? <laughs> That's great. In 2013, it was owned by Joseph C. Smith, who partnered with Starwood Hotels and Resorts. And now it is La Posada de Santa Fe, a tribute portfolio resort and spa. It is a member of the Historic Hotels of America since 2019. The Staub House is now a restaurant and bar named after Julia. It's called Julia, a spirited restaurant and bar. And they also serve the Julia Riga Margarita. Oh my gosh, and now I want one. It's in it. I knew it. You know what? They did not have the recipe. (laughs) I was even trying to look at it. They keep it they keep it close to the chest. They yeah, don't that's a secret. Um but yeah, as I mentioned, it now has a spa and it has four restaurants in total. <gasps> hundred and fifty seven casita style rooms and suites, and some rooms are over two hundred and thirty years old. Mm, um at one point I was so upset because I was gonna tell you let's go do this, but then when I tried to actually see if you could book it, it doesn't seem like it's available anymore. But they used to offer the Julia Staub Ghost Package. I was going to say a ghost thing. <laughs> it was a two-night stay where you got two free welcome drinks and a copy of Hannah Nordhaus's book, American Ghost, A Family's Extraordinary History on the Desert Frontier. And why, in the good Lord's name, did they stop this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It so upsets me because I wanted to do it so bad. Yeah. And then when I went to click, like, I should see if, they can, if we can book it, how much it is, and... COVID. It just, yeah, it was <laughs> like, it was like, well, all I got was that whole 404 page not found, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> My heart. but anyway, so speaking of American Ghost by Hannah Nordhaus, uh, that book is written, as I said, by Julia's great-great-granddaughter about Julia, her ghost, and the family around her, mm. and the book launch was actually held at La Posada right after the refurbishment of the Staub Mansion. Okay. I was going to ask a stupid question, but I'm not going to. Just kidding. I will, because I brought it up. I was, <laughs> ask, I was going to ask if she had a, had the chance to meet her great-great-grandma, but she died so young, so I'm guessing Yeah. Not. No. No, she didn't, and um, I don't know if I talk about this later, but she, she actually found out a little bit about her great-great-grandmother from her great-aunt, who... Her great-aunt Lizzie Mm -hmm. basically was the family's, like, self-proclaimed family historian. Mm -hmm. And she was very fascinated by the ghost stories about Julia. And so she did a lot of research and wrote a bunch of stuff in, like, a memoir. Like, I don't know if she actually published it or if it was just, like, a personal thing that um, Hannah stumbled across. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. So that actually, like piqued Hannah's interest in Julia. Which is why I'm sure, sorry, a little off, kind of off topic, topic, but they have those, like, those apps and stuff where families can, like, go in and write stories about each other. Have you seen those? So that, like, stories about your family and ancestors don't get, like, lost in time or whatever. Oh, I I forgot what they're called, but it's really cool. Like, you can download the app and your mom and your grandparents and all those people and they could put stories in there that they know about the family oh, yeah i'll have to look yeah. into that that'd be really interesting because yeah. i know my family has a ton of cool stories yeah um and i guess spoiler alert i did mention that julia is a ghost now but we'll get more into that <laughs> in a bit ghost <laughs> about ghost thing i did say her. we were going to talk about ghosts <laughs> yes. and i am talking about julia a lot I figured, so i guess especially because she was crazy at one point so yeah makes sense but just one last note about the hotel itself. Um, it has won the AAA Four Diamond Award 
and the 2022 and the 2023 top 25 historic hotels of America most magnificent gardens. Oh, okay. So, it's an award. AAA award, like the insurance company. Don't ask I'm me assuming that. because no Michelin, you know, stars, and then they have nothing to do with restaurants. That's true. Either. That yeah, that's possible. <laughs> I have no idea to be honest, but that makes sense to me. We'll go with that. <laughs> But anyways, so as I mentioned, this hotel has got some ghosts. Yay! <laughs> uh, the hotel and its ghosts have been featured in many TV shows, including NBC's Unsolved Mysteries, mm-hmm. Season 7, Episode 2. It aired October 2nd, 1994. Ooh, I'm oldie. I did not get a chance to watch it, but I do plan to. Yes. Uh, it also appeared on Weird Travels and Lifetime's The Haunting of. Dot, dot, dot. So... I will say the main focus of the ghostly experience, as I have mentioned before, is Julia. But there are actually a few other possible entities on the property. Um, First off, we have the Cigar Man, (gasps) who is probably my second favorite ghost in this place. Um, He haunts the Baca house area, and he loves cigars and having guests. Oh, okay. Uh, People will find... Or smell a cloud of cigar smoke where he is active. and and cigar smoke is nice. Yeah, and it is a smoke-free hotel. So usually the (laughs) employees hear about it. Yeah, like the guests will be calling like management and being like, there's somebody smoking in the room next to me. Like, (laughs) you need to go tell them to stop or whatever. Unit's been vacant for years. Yeah, so they'll go to go check out the smoke, see what's going on. Um, and they'll knock on the door and there'll be a guy that just says, come in, all excited. And then you open the door and nobody's there. Ooh, so spooky. He just likes chilling with his cigars and <laughs> like, yeah. having guests. <laughs> I know somebody's complaining again. Come on in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just him. Uh, the other one that's slightly. Does ever int- talk about what he looks like? No, they don't have any record of what he looks like. They only smell him oh, and. Oh, hear him. Okay. And hear him. Um, but this next guy, apparently somebody has seen him because they call him the mustache man. What kind of mustache? (laughs) He has an 1800s or early 1900s handlebar mustache. Oh, those are the best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, he's fun too because he will knock on doors and just tell people they need to leave at various times during the day or night. (laughs) I'm like, sir, I rented this room for the whole night. (laughs) Um... Yeah, so he, yeah, he just, that's all he does. He just rude. goes around and knocks on doors and tells people to leave. That's rude. So you have the cigar man who's, like, chill smoking. with anybody there. Like, and then, I booked this smoke-free hotel. And then the mustache man who's like, no, you need to get out, thanks. Imagine <laughs> getting both of them in one night. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will note, um... Benjamin Ragford, who wrote um, Mysterious New Mexico, he does speculate maybe this is a prank that's That's pulled. what I was going to wonder. Yeah, like either by guests who have heard the story or even Employees. maybe staff, yeah. you know. They're all not smoking, that's weird, it must be a ghost. Yeah, well, the knocking part. <laughs> that too, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so there is also the little boy. Uh-oh. He is an eight or nine year old boy who hangs out in the gift shop. Oh, I would too. <laughs> he is very mischievous. Mischievous. Uh, he will have. He will. Ugh, sorry. He will move books, candies, toys, pens, wherever to odd shopping. places. Yeah. Yeah. No, he just relocates everything. No, he's, he's like, like uh, I can't afford that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 
exactly. Um, so Pauline Jacob, um, at the time, so when uh, Mysterious New Mexico was written, which I believe was 2014, okay. uh, she was a long-time employee at that time. I don't know if she's still there or not. She may be. That was 10 years ago, so yeah. maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but she was a long-time employee at that time, and uh, she would explain that uh, she was, like, one of either the only person with a key or one other person had a key. And mm-hmm. a lot of times this stuff would be moved when she had locked up the shop and left. Oh. Um, for instance, she found a pen, like, among the shirts one time. And there's <laughs> another time... Cameras? She, I guess not, because oh, okay. they didn't mention anything about cameras. And I think Benjamin Radford, he's the scientific paranormal investigator, he would definitely be, like, all over those cameras yeah, if they okay. had it. Um... But anyways, so she also happened one day to lose an earring shortly after she showed up to work. Mm-hmm. And later she, like, she literally searched the whole shop. She searched everywhere. She, like, shook her, shook her clothes out and her hair. Couldn't find this dang earring that she knew she walked into the shop with. She ended up finding it in the bottom of her purse. And, huh. like, yeah, she was like, that's weird because my purse is closed. And... <laughs> Maybe she thought she put it on. Which is possible. <laughs> Don't know. But that's... She She contributes it to the little boy. She blames She's him. Dang him. <laughs> and they're like, no, you're just, like, losing your memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, anyways, then we also have the shadowy figure. Uh-oh. There's not a whole lot about this thing, but all they say is it's a shadow that moves just out of sight most of the time. Uh, sometimes it does show up as a man-shaped shadow person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually found in the spa area. Uh, Pauline Jacob, as I mentioned her before, she believes it's not a nice entity, but everything I read didn't really say it did anything bad. It just is creepy. in the corner of your eye all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's just creepy, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> she thought that's not nice. Yeah. So, now we finally get to Julia Staub. A.K.A. the most famous ghost in Santa Fe, according oh. to one of the articles I read. <laughs> um, so Julia's apparition was first reported to be seen in 1979 by Alan Day, a janitor at the time. He was mopping late at night and he saw a woman in a black Victorian dress and her white hair pulled into a severe bun and she was standing by the fireplace. Oh, I was actually going to ask... Um like when her hair turned white, it t- turned white forever. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so when she was a ghost, even her hair was yeah. white. Interesting. Um, not too long after, a security guard saw her wandering the halls, and he ran away. <laughs> He's all nope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, a hotel operator also saw Julia reposing in an armchair. Oh. Her apparition is rarely seen, but usually she looks similar to how Alan Day saw her. And she is also seen at the top of the Grand Staircase in the original building, the Staub House. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is also seen in the Nasing Room, which is a small alcove built on the old formal gardens of the original structure. No. Um, people believe she stuck around because she went insane and died locked up in her room. Yeah. Um, so now she's stuck there forever? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> she has... Um, uh, unfinished business. That's what a lot of people say. Yeah. The unfinished business aspect. Um, so Karen Walker, a Santa Fe real estate broker who had an office in La Posada had many encounters with Julia. Um, one of them 
included the day after the Staub House 100th anniversary party. Uh, she and some other people who usually hung out in the house uh, were, I guess, hanging out at the bar, having drinks, whatever. All the windows and doors were closed, but all of a sudden this cold wind just started going through the bar. Ooh. And she said it wouldn't stop. And so I guess, like, kind of jokingly, she looked around and asked people, like, well, gosh, did anyone invite Julia to the party? And then (laughs) they were like... here anyway. (laughs) Yeah, and they were like, oh, no. And so they actually ended up putting roses and champagne on the bar and apologizing to Julia for not inviting her, and that's when the wind stopped. She's all, that's good enough. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's like a a man trying to apologize. Not inviting her to a party in her own house. Rude. So rude. (laughs) Um... So Julia is also credited with, and this is mainly in Suite 100 where her room was. Okay. Uh, moving blankets from the room closet to the bed, uh, pulling blankets off of sleepers. <gasps> That's mo- my biggest fear. Right. <laughs> moving curtains, turning the bathtub water faucet on, uh, flushing the toilets. She's all you forgot to flush. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's also attributed with turning gas fireplaces on and off. That's dangerous. Yeah. Um, She's also known, associated with uh, orange blossom and rose scent. Oh. Uh, Her cloudy reflection shows up in mirrors. There are dancing orbs in her room. And, sorry, I'm turning my page. She's a busy, busy ghost. (laughs) She is. At least she smells good. Right. Um, and Pauline Jacob, again, says that when Julia is happy, the chandeliers sway and you, the bar glasses will clink on their own. But when Julia is upset, electrical, computer, cameras, anything electrical basically starts going haywire. Oh, okay. So they usually know they pissed her off when everything goes nuts. <laughs> um, one fall night, uh, Santa Fe unexpectedly got really cold And so pretty much all the guests were asking for the heat to be turned on. You know, the front Mm -hmm. desk is just getting all these calls, right? Um, And as luck would have it, either the locks to the boiler room were changed and no one happened to have the keys yet, or the maintenance man was the only one who had keys and he had gone fishing. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not important. So there was two versions of the story, but basic concept was nobody had keys at the time. And they were waiting for somebody to show up with the keys. Okay. So, basically, the bottom line of it is, during the night, the heat came on by itself and was already handled by the time somebody did show up with the key. He's like, I drove all this way. (laughs) Back from my fishing trip. In the freezing cold, apparently. (laughs) It was in the middle of the... Oh, not an ocean. Just kidding. (laughs) For those who don't know, New Mexico is a landlocked state, and we have very sad lakes. Yeah, it didn't take me that long, actually, to come to shore. Um, But one version of the story says that a woman with a German accent called the front desk to say her guests were half frozen. Oh, whoa. And how are we going to fix this? Karen. She's a Karen. Right. (laughs) And then the clerk said, I'm sorry, but... Right now, all we can do is offer you some blankets and hot cocoa, but other than that, like, you're going to have to wait until we get the key back, you know? That that would be enough for me. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, this woman with a German accent turned around and said, you know what? I'm just going to take care of it myself and hung up. Uh, Within the hour, the heat was back on. She just floated through the door that was locked. Apparently. Figured it out. Yes. (laughs) She just, she did it. And... 
I, if I want to say in that story that the caretaker showed up and the front clerk was like, oh, thank you so much for taking care of it. And he was like, I literally just walked in. <laughs> He's like, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, Julia is also known to challenge skeptics. Oh. So one houseman, uh, and I guess that was one of the employees that one of their titles is a houseman. Oh. I don't know exactly what they do, but. Never heard of it. Uh, but he didn't believe in her ghost and teased his other co-workers for believing in Julia's ghost. Then, as he was waiting outside for outside of a room for a co-worker, a whole fire extinguisher box fixture ripped off the wall and fell on him. <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, you're not going to exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, yeah, so, anyways, he went downstairs and quit. <laughs> like no thank you yeah he, he was done could have just filed workman's comp but whatever yeah. <laughs> but um but the thing is most la posada employees emphasize respecting julia in her memory um and you will see like in most of the hotel websites and all of that they don't really mention julia going insane they oh, just say oh yeah. she just decided to stay here kind of thing you know like we oh, don't know yeah. why but they don't they don't like to like talk about bad yeah basically yeah exactly um and they say overall she's a friendly and honored spirit she's benevolent and she doesn't appear in guest rooms or the casitas of course outside of suite 11 or suite 100 not 11 (laughs) suite 100 100 (laughs) um of course her modern descendants aren't too bothered by julia's status as a ghost uh that'd be so crazy like imagine your great-great-grandma had like Margarita's named after her because she was a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, oh, you go, Grandma. Yeah. Um, Hannah said that her family often feels like it links them to their New Mexico history, and it's kind of a fun thing for them. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned before, Hannah Nordhaus's great aunt Lizzie, uh, she actually stayed in Suite 100 and says that she saw a rocking chair move on its own Ooh. while she was there. Of course um, they have a rocking chair in there. Yeah. And Hannah and her cousins, uh, as teens or maybe young adults, would go to the hotel and ask if they could just chill in Julia's room, which they would let them if they could. Oh. And a lot of times they would try to call for Julia, but Hannah admits that it was usually, like, joking and condescendingly. Oh. Kind of like calling for a kitty. Yeah. Oh. You know, so she was like, so understandably, Julia never answered. <laughs> I'm surprised she wasn't pissed. Like, right. Oh, yeah, here I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hannah did return as an adult in the spring of 2011 or 2012, uh, looking for connection to her ancestor as a more mature adult and mother. Uh, she had more knowledge of Julia from family stories. Um, as I mentioned before, some of those stories turned out to be Abraham's aunt, Flora Spiegelberg, but some of the stories she knew were legit. Um, she did, which I mentioned them earlier, all the stuff I mentioned before was some stuff that she had learned about Julia. Okay. Uh, she did go on a ghost tour with a man named John Lorenzen, who was a longtime local guide. Uh, they went through the home, like they went actually all around Santa Fe, oh, but okay. um, they ended up ending the tra- the tour at the Stub Mansion okay, or La Posada. Yeah. Um, so they saw Abraham's guilt initials on the entryway, excuse me, um, and he did share multiple stories about how Julia may have died. Uh, there were speculation that she may have killed herself with laudanum or arsenic. She may have been murdered by her husband. She was poisoned. <laughs> yeah. 
Or there was also a side story where she may have been murdered by a Spanish maid who was also her husband's mistress. But yeah. that's the only mention I've seen of that <laughs> out of all of the sources so I looked like, at. could have been that this thing. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know. Um, it was the Spanish maid's great-great-great-granddaughter who said it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Hannah, that in that visit, she stayed in Suite 100 for the night. And she may have experienced orbs when she woke up, but she wasn't sure about it. And she de- decided not to share any details about it in the essay that I was reading. Well, then how do you know about it? Because she said, she kind of said, like, I may have experienced some orbs, but who really knows, like, if I was just tired? And then she just, like, continued on with. You always experience orbs when you're tired? <laughs> I guess. There might be something wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, because this was from an essay that she had written. I don't know if it was before or after she wrote her book, but she did okay. have an essay online oh, okay. about uh, Julia and her experiences. Mm. But she also stopped at the cemetery where Abraham and Julia rest. Uh, unfortunately, it's very decrepit overall and neglected. Oh. Um, she said that I guess the cemetery board members decided to stop irrigating it, so everything's dead now. And oh. Yeah. Yeah. But the Staub Monument is still very present. Uh, it is a pale gray granite structure that is 15 to 20 feet tall. Oh, wow. It has a gothic S adorning the top with a simpler carving of Staub below it. And Abraham, Julia, and five of their children are buried there. Oh, okay. Um, Where are the other two buried? No idea. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> like, that's rude. Yeah. <laughs> that's all that could fit. Maybe by that time the cemetery was already looking not so hot, so maybe they were Yeah, like, maybe. Um, but some other ghostly activity, we're not sure if this is Julia or any of the other spirits, is um, there are noises on the third floor, even though it doesn't exist. <gasps> the roof? Yeah, basically. <laughs> the now roof. <laughs> like, people on the second floor, I guess, will call and be like, there's people running up there and, like... I wonder what it, it looks like there's like people now. moving I'm sure they, like, um, redid it or whatever, but it, yeah. it looks like now. You know, like, yeah, I'd have to look it up. I didn't see any pictures of it now. Yeah, interesting. Um, guest rooms do have vanishing items. That's just the staff again. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, a bartender reported all the glasses on a shelf flew off and crashed to the floor on a super busy evening. Oh, gosh. On the same night, a waitress dropped multiple trays and said that it felt like someone pushed <laughs> up on them from underneath. That would be so horrible. I feel like I quit. You guys, I can't do this Yeah, anymore. And they said it was a seasoned waitress. Like, she was, oh like, well-experienced. She'd been there a while. And, like, she just said, I kept feeling like somebody was smacking my tray from below. That's so crazy, because sometimes <laughs> I do see waitresses or waiters, like, walking around, like, crazy with the trays, and yeah. they're full of food. I'm like, they're going to drop. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they do. Um, and also that vases of flowers are relocated. Oh, she's all, that doesn't quote her. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that is La Posada Hotel and all of its ghosty goos. Have you ever been there? I have not. Sounds, I want to go. The fact that it's a luxurious resort, I'm wondering how much it costs to stay there. It's probably super expensive. (laughs) Just get six people in one room and divide it that. Yeah, (laughs) we're just all going to sleep all on top of each other. It'll be great. I liked it. That was a good story. Thank you so much. You ghosts.
All right. So I decided, since we're going to be releasing this during spooky season, to do the history of Halloween, which was a lot of fun to learn about. Nice. All right. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. Get your pumpkin spice lattes ready, guys. Here we go. <laughs> um, all right. So Halloween has its roots starting in ancient Celtic celebrations. The fe- festival of Samhain, which is weird because I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it, but it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. Samhain is how they say it to pronounce it. Oh, so that's why some people say Samhain. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because I, I kept, when I was trying to type it out, and I was like, okay, remember when you're recording that it's Samhain, but when you're typing it out, it's Sam Hine. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what I said. Okay. Yes. Now I'm going to laugh at other shows that where they're like, <laughs> it's Sam Hine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a Gaelic word, so it okay. does not sound like the way it looks, I guess. Okay. Um. So this was a pagan religious holiday that celebrated the start of the harvest and the end of summer. Usually it would occur around October 31st through November 1st. This was, um, this was used to usher in the dark half of the year, as they would call it. Uh, during this time, they believed that the barrier between the physical world and the spiritual world would break down, allowing inter- interaction between humans and the inhabitants of the other world. During this time of year, heart fires were burnt in homes and left burning during the harvest. When the harvest was complete, townspeople would gather with druid priests and use a wheel that would spin, causing friction and spark a fire. People would then take a piece of this fire home to relight their hearths at home. Hmm. So, which is interesting because, you know, little villages, because I picture, I was like, oh, that would be so cool if we still did that. But how we, we get our fires home, that would be really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> really dangerous. Driving, like, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't blow out. Don't catch me on fire. Don't open the windows. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody breathe. <laughs> Um, this was a required celebration that all must attend. If they didn't, it was believed that they would be punished by the gods with a serious illness or death. These celebrations could last anywhere from three to six days, where there would be lots of drinking of meat or beer and tons of eating. So you're telling me I have to be social. You have to. You have to (laughs) eat a lot. (laughs) Uh, since they believed the barrier was down, they often left offerings outside of the villages for fairies or sids is the other uh, Gaelic word for them. Oftentimes, uh, they would also dress as animals or monsters so that the fairies wouldn't kidnap them. I didn't realize it was so involved with fairies. Yeah, which actually I'm going to list a couple of the fairies um, or nymphs is also what they could be called too. Um, so one of the fairy monsters was called the puka. Um, it was a creature that would either bring good or bad fortune, which I mostly saw bad. I never really saw good. Um, and they would either have white or black fur and they were shapeshifters. They would take the appearance of many animals such as horses and cats and dogs and rabbits and cattle, but sometimes they would appear like a human, but with still a couple of animal features, so like animal ears or eyes or something like that. Okay. So you could tell that it was a puka. Um, they were... So, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, so I was just going to say, so almost like, I don't know if it's like other cultures too, but I know there's some Hispanic stories about like the devil, like you could tell it was him if like his feet were like hooves or... <laughs> yeah, you're all you are nuts. <laughs> So, Who you say you are, sir. I wonder which came first. <laughs> like, this yeah. idea of this puka or... 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. If they influenced each other or Could have, could have, could have. But a lot, you'll see a lot too with Halloween, which, I mean, I guess I have heard in the pack, past about um, this kind of stuff, but I didn't realize it was so heavily, like, came from Celtic bullies. That's true. I was surprised when you said Celtic. Yeah. yeah. Um, these pukas were very mischievous and often had the habit of playing with children and sometimes running off with them never to be found again. Just guess I would be hunting me some pukas. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Dean, where are you? <laughs> um, the next one was the Lady Gwyn, which was a headless woman dressed in white who would chase after people who wandered around at night alone. Um, and she was oftentimes accompanied by a black pig. I don't know why, but the pig was there. <laughs> Pigs can be scary. <laughs> oh, yeah, they can. <laughs> Um, and then she would, she would try to basically, like, if she saw you wandering around at night alone, she would try to lure you, like, by pretending she was lost and that she needed help. But I'm, like, pretty sure if I saw a woman with no head, I'd be like, yeah, lady. I was... <laughs> lost too, first of all, if I didn't have a head. I was Second gonna of all, say that. Nope. <laughs> yeah, this lady without a head is somehow telling me she's lost. They're I'm... like, don't <laughs> fall for it, guys. And they're like, well, but I know I wasn't looking at her head. <laughs> <laughs> Get it? <laughs> um, and then the last one were the Dulahan, which were headless horsemen who would carry their heads in their hands and would ride on horses and th- that had flames of eye- as eyes. Ooh. Just like the headless horsemen, basically. I was going to say, isn't that in Sleepy Hollow? It is, yes. Okay. Which, um, I don't know, is Sleepy Holly a uh, holly? <laughs> is Sleepy Hollow, is that a a Celtic or Gaelic tale? Or is it from England? It's from England, right? It's shown, like, I know the movie, they're dressed like English. Okay. Or um, actually either English or, like, early American. Which, I mean, actually a lot of, like, English and... English actually... Or England. (laughs) English. England actually gets brought into this a lot, too. So, I mean, maybe they, you know, crossed their... Yeah. Their lores and stuff. But these were... These all were different forms of fairies or nymphs. Okay. So keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> during the Middle Ages, the celebration slowly started to progress. Um, oh, I can't even say this word. Sam Gonigans, which were more personal fires, were kept um, near the farms to protect the families um, and to keep fairies away, basically. So it went from being like a whole village type of thing to where families, you know, were living on huge farms, so they would just do it themselves. Okay. And then they would string up or put on stakes turnips carved at, like into jack-o'-lanterns. And jack-o'-lanterns got their name from the legend of Stingy Jack. Have you ever heard of that legend? I feel like I have, but okay. I don't remember it offhand. I love this legend. It's <laughs> kind of crazy. But also, have you seen, there's this new Halloween movie that came out, I think it came out last year, called The Curse of um, Bridge Hollow. No. No? Okay. Well, it's really cute. You should watch it. But it's on Netflix, and it's based off of the Stingy Jack thing. That's their whole thing. And he, like, basically brings all the Halloween decorations to life, is what that story is. But nothing to do with this. (laughs) Anyways, so according to legend, uh, Stingy Jack had invited the devil to have a drink with him. But when it was time to pay, he didn't want to. So he instead asked the devil to turn into a coin so he could pay that way. Weird. Mm-hmm. And the devil agreed and changed into the coin. And when he changed, Jack put him instead into his pocket. 
and in his pocket he had a silver cross that pre- prevented the devil from changing back into his original form. Oh. Yeah. Like, you could capture the devil like that? Stingy Jack. I wish it was that easy. I know, right? <laughs> You're like, hey, I don't want to pay. Can you just turn into a coin? <laughs> Weird. Um, he eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother him for a year and if he died, he would not claim his soul. Okay. Okay. Then a year later, he tricked the devil again. Oh, lovely. Yes. This is going to go well. <laughs> Which I don't know how he was convincing the devil all these times. Um, basically, he had him climb up into a tree to pick him some fruit. Which I'm like, what? Why is the devil doing this for this guy? Right? He must have been very convincing. Um, while he was up there, Jack carved a cross into the tree so he was trapped. Um, he finally let him down after promising him he wouldn't bother him for another 10 more years. Um, when, so, I don't know why I wouldn't just be like, forever. Right? <laughs> like, like, no revenge on me ever, but 10 years well, is what he Well, living the crazy life he lives, maybe he didn't think he was going to last that long. <laughs> true. That's true. And maybe the devil's like, or maybe he started with 20 and he's like, 15 and he's like, 10. <laughs> okay, fine. 10 years. <laughs> um, when Jack finally died... God did not want him in heaven, and the devil, who promised not to claim his soul, wouldn't let him into hell either. The devil let Jack go into the dark night with a burning coal um, to light his way. Jack carved out a little turnip and climbed in um, with his coal to roam the earth forever. Huh. That's where the story of Jack Lanterns came from. So ever since in Scotland and Ireland, they have been carving scary faces into turnips and potatoes, lighting them and placing them around to ward off evil spirits. In England, they would use large beets. Then later, when they brought the tradition to America, they learned that the native fruit in America, pumpkins, were way better for this. Mm -hmm. Which I also didn't know that pumpkins were native to America. I didn't know that. You did? Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. So then let's talk about this thing called Dumb Supper. That sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) So dumb back in the day Uh meant like silent, you know. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, which because when I first saw it, I was like, Dumb Supper? What? Do we act like fools? Is this like the Feast (laughs) of Fools? That's great. (laughs) Um, So this Dumb Supper started around this time, too. It was a supper meant to be celebrated with ancestors or loved ones who had passed. It was a way for them to interact with the dead, um, even after, interact with them even after death. So basically they would have this supper and they would open the windows and doors so that the spirits could come in and um, they would have this meal in reverse order. So they would start with dessert and they would end with the appetizer. Okay. So it was kind of like um, reverse life, I guess. Okay. And then um, children would often entertain the dead um, by playing games, so they would think that the dead were watching them, I guess. And adults would update the dead on what happened in the past year. So they would do this every year. Then, at night, the windows and doors would be left open for spirits to come inside, which is so dangerous. Don't do that, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Don't do that today. And I also, I didn't write notes on it, but I thought this was interesting, too. I saw this thing where it talked about women doing this specifically, and um, they actually were doing it as a way for them to find their future husband. It became like a love love thing um, 
like in the Middle Ages where they would try to do basically like parlor tricks to try to find husbands at these dumb suppers. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so guess what I'm having this year, guys? A dumb supper. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> I won't. Trust me. <laughs> Uh, what is what is what do the more big ladies say? Fresh air is for dead people. <laughs> it is. It is. I hardly ever open my windows or doors. Yeah. So. Um, as Christianity started to grow, several church leaders tried to change the tradition and reframe it as a Christian celebration. Pope um, Boniface, Boniface, in the fifth century. I don't know, guys. Sorry. In the 5th century, changed it to a celebration on May 13th as a day to celebrate saints and martyrs. But the fire festivals in the fall remained. So it was kind of like they created this new holiday to be like, oh, let's reframe it as this. But then they're like, well, but we're still going to do this stuff in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then uh, in the 9th century, Pope Gregory moved the celebration back to the fall. He's like, okay, nobody's listening to us about it being in May. Let's move it back to the fall. And declared All Saints Day on November 1st and All Souls Day on November 2nd. Okay. That's what I want. Um, even with these new traditions, the pagan ones remained the same. October 31st started being called All Hallows Eve and then later into Halloween. It remained pretty much the same until it was brought over during the 19th century with Irish immigrants into coming to America. Um, all right, so let's talk about trick-or-treating. Yay! Trick-or-treating, uh-huh. <laughs> although it is not exactly certain where trick-or-treating got its start, because there's several different versions of trick-or-treating throughout different cultures, basically. Okay. Um, there are several Celtic <clears throat> and ancient traditions that are similar, although people started dressing up to ward off evil spirits, in later Celtic tradition, people began dressing up as ghosts and spirits and then were, would perform antics in return for treats. This tradition dates back to the Middle Ages and is thought as the origins of trick-or-treating. So they would just, like, perform little tricks and people would give them treats for them. And now people get pissed if you even make the kids say trick-or-treat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which is like, relax, people. <laughs> relax. Um, some Christian practices in England would involve a tradition called souling, where poor people would visit the homes of wealthy people and receive soul cakes in exchange for promising to pray for the homeowner's dead relatives. Um, this was later taken up by children who would go door to door instead of asking for treats. Hmm. So you would go pray for their dead loved ones and then they would give you soul cake. Ooh. Yes. In Scotland and Ireland, kids would do something called guising. Instead of praying for the dead, they would sing songs, perform poems, and or do a trick or treat, trick for a treat. That would often be such, such things as fruit, nuts, and coins. Um, <clears throat> in the 1840s, the new wave of Im immigrants from Ireland, escaping the Irish potato famine, helped to bring Halloween to America. In the early 20th century, Irish and Scottish communities brought back the traditions of guising and souling. In the 1920s, pranks were a huge way for people to celebrate Halloween. So it was like the immigrants kind of bring, uh, tried to bring about these traditions of going around and, you know, doing little tricks for treats. And then in the 1920s, for some reason, young people went crazy and they started using Halloween as a way to pull a bunch of pranks and cause mayhem. Yeah. During the Great Depression, the great uh, the mischief got 
worse. People begin to vandalize and cause cause physical violence, which I don't know why. <laughs> Sounds horrible. Like people are always already depressed, and then you're causing mayhem. Um, in the 1930s, it is theorized that organized community or trick or treating was brought back to help handle the mischief. So. <clears throat> Basically, they're like, okay, instead of just pure mayhem happening on Halloween, let's do trick-or-treating. You know, the kids go out every night, and we know where they're at. They're just asking for treats. Instead of trying to appease spirits, we're trying to appease the children. Yes, yes, because they got out of hand, kids these days. Ward off the evil children by giving them candy. Exactly. That that sounds like a bad idea, actually. I'll make them crazy. Uh, Then when World War II happened, trick-or-treating paused due to sugar rationing and there were fewer treats to give out at the time then during the post-war baby boom halloween made a comeback and candy companies really took advantage of this this was when um candy companies really started to launch like a nationwide campaigns that specifically uh targeted halloween okay um and then it also talked about basically i thought this was interesting but a comic strip of um charlie brown came out in i think 1952 that depicted trick-or-treating and then disney also did i forget oh it was um donald duck and his nephews trick-or-treating in this in the 50s and this was the first time that trick-or-treating was really like a thing like a major major that trick-or-treat one with the witch I think so. Yes. I was just watching that really? the other day with my son. That was like the first time that <laughs> trick or treating really became like what it is today was in the fifties, thanks to Charlie Brown and Disney. Dang, okay. Um so I talked a little bit too about witches. So why are witches tied to Halloween, basically? Um actually the first time that witches were really talked about in links to Halloween was during the nineteen eighties with the growing popularity of Wicca. Wicca is a nature-based pagan religion where they worship a female goddess and a male horned god. Although everyone who follows Wicca has somewhat different versions of how they practice it, they often celebrate different moon phases and solstices incorporating nature and elements. And for some reason in the 80s, you know, when that became a thing, they got tied to Halloween because I think it was worshiping the different phases of life and Halloween celebrates the transition of summer to fall, basically. Yeah. Um, in ancient Celtic times, it was believed that when people turn into animals for bad behavior, it was often cats. So this is how cats get pulled into Halloween. Yeah. They were often, uh, if they were turned with black magic, then they turned into black cats. So if you misbehave, you're going to be binks up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then why orange and black? Why are those the colors of Halloween? These colors actually come from the Celtic traditions. Black represented the end of summer, and orange represented the beginning of the harvest. Okay. So that's where we get those colors. Fun. And then also talking about basically apples during Halloween. Apple, why are apples involved in Halloween? And you'll understand what I mean in a second. Okay. But um, they come from the Roman festival um, called Pomona. And that's honoring the goddess of agriculture and abundance. There was a game people were, that people would play where they would bob for apples in order to determine their futures in love. So oh. 
another love thing about Halloween. Um, when the Romans conquered the British Isles in 43 AD, it blended some of the uh, Samhain and eventually, like, the traditions uh, intertwined or whatever. Yeah. And eventually bobbing for apples became a Halloween tradition. Um, for centuries, fruit was also coated with syrup to help with preservation. And during Pomona, apples were often offered to the goddess. So then we kind of did that during Halloween, too, where candy apples come in. Candy apples were invented by a candy maker named William W. Kolb in 1908 in Newark, New Jersey. He had made a new red cinnamon candy for Christmas time. And he thought the best way to display this candy was to dip apples in them and put them in the window for people to see. It was never intended for them to be eaten with the apple, but when he started selling them, they became super popular and he sold out the first batch in minutes. Which I'm like, how do you put candy on an apple and not expect people to eat the apple with the candy? <laughs> Obviously that was going to happen. Um, it turned into a very famous Halloween treat and he would sell thousands a year. Um <clears throat> Oh, so even though it started out as a Christmas treat, it eventually turned into a Halloween treat because that's when the best time to get apples is, is during the harvest. Um, and then people started handing them out to trick-or-treaters as well. Yeah. Um, I was going to say my grandparents and my parents talk about getting candy apples for yeah, Halloween. Yeah, imagine. That'd be kind of like... And now we don't get them because we're scared of people blades. poison things. And- <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> yes, horrible, but yes. And actually, candy apples are um, a healthy alternative snack because usually a candied apple only has um, less than 300 calories. Oh, yes. Um, and then bats. Why are bats associated with Halloween? So it was during uh, Samhain, in Celtic times, bonfires would burn, were burning to ward off evil, and this often attracted insects. And then the insects would attract bats who would come down to eat them. Quickly, bats became associated with the holiday and often were also seen as a harbinger of death. So behave or those bats are going to get you. (laughs) And then when uh, vampire bats were first discovered feeding off the blood of cattle and other farm animals, they got their name vampire because Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1897. So that's why they're called vampire bats. And then they got... um, The... Sorry. So since they were tied to Dracula, they got their names and um, now became a part of the dark times of Halloween. Um, And then I'm going to talk about one of your favorite candies. (gasps) Candy corn. (laughs) 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 So uh, candy corn, when it first came out, it was called chicken feed. Isn't that weird? Doesn't that tell you... (laughs) How horrible it is. <laughs> uh, originally, it was created um, by a Wonderly Candy Corn Company employee named George Renninger. And um, this was during the time when a lot of families had farms and it was marketed as a horticultural, to the horticultural populace. So he had a huge colorful rooster on it and their slogan was something worth crowing for. And it was called chicken feed. Crowing in yes. sadness. <laughs> but also there's a chicken and you're calling it crowing. I don't know. Anyways. And then later on, the Geolitz Candy Company, which is now Jelly Bean Company, uh, or sorry, Jelly Belly Company, released it to the masses and turned 
at the turn of the century and they changed the name to candy corn. It's disgusting. But yeah, that's the history of Halloween and just some fun facts of how some of the popular iconic figures are tied to it now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'm getting in the Halloween spirit, and I wish mm-hmm. my house was decorated now. Well, I wish it was, too. This will probably be released <laughs> after my house is decorated. That's true, that's true. As of right now, we are in mid-September, and yeah. I need to get my butt into gear. You do. You do. I've, my house has been decorated for weeks, guys. Because we go, well, yeah, and we go crazy. <laughs> my husband loves yeah. decorating all crazy outside, so it's all lit up and pretty. Yeah, it's fun. I remember I was thinking last year... Mm-hmm. When I celebrated Halloween, I was like, oh, I kind of missed, like, the year before when I was with Janelle and Ryan and it was all Halloween-y. And then, remember when we did all those apples for the apple pies <laughs> and then we never used them? That was great. Uh, yeah. It my, smelled so good. It smelled so amazing. I was ready to do so many things with it. But, like, it was a house of ADHD people. And we just forgot it, it existed. We forgot it existed in the freezer. Spent hours, guys. <laughs> hours. Peeling, cutting. Cooking. Uh, cooking. Yeah. These smelled apples. amazing. It was a yeah. great experience. And then our ADHD brains all forgot it existed. And we never nothing. got to eat it. Yeah, so it was like so a year or two later, we were like, what's this in the freezer? Oh, wait. <laughs> That's so horrible. If you ever invite me to do that again, and we don't eat it, <laughs> so mad at you guys. We'll have to start like early in the morning so we can just do it all that yeah, day. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> we started at like 6 p.m. in the evening and we were like yeah. cooking stuff at like midnight. <laughs> yeah, and we were listening to Taylor Swift and it was great. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> I remember uh, Ryan telling me, are we going to be listening to Taylor Swift all the time now? You're like, well, if Chelsea's going to be living with us, then yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry about it. Sorry, but, not sorry. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that. Happy Halloween. Yeah, happy Halloween, guys. I'll make sure this gets released around then. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you. And, um... Oh, and don't forget to check out our social media and all that fun stuff. We are on Facebook as Desert Sirens. Uh, One S in Desert, and there is an S at the end of Sirens. There's two of us. Yes. (laughs) And um, we are on Instagram as Desert Sirens Podcast. And Mm -hmm. our email is DesertSirensPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to reach out, share any stories you might want to share, um, give us nice, constructive feedback. Please be nice. <laughs> we are I fragile people. Please. <laughs> um, or, oh, and... Oh, yeah. oh sorry. Go, Go for it. <laughs> I was just going to say, too, that at this point, now when we're recording, we have our intro music, thanks to... My grandchild's grandpa! Um, his name is Pat Garcia, and he plays guitar, and it's going to be awesome. It's pretty you guys snazzy, will have guys. heard it multiple times by now. Yes, but... you will, but this is when we finally figured it out and got it done. So. <laughs> yeah. And now I have to go edit all these so they can be released. Yay! <laughs> all right, bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Like, follow, share. Bye. Yeah.